Heavenly Father, whatever befall, we ask you to still remain our vision, our focus, our all, so that over all of life, whether in sickness and health, whether in good, whether in dark, whether in easy or difficult, might you be, O oh God, the ruler of everything in our lives. We come to say that all over again, Father, because we unsaid it this week. We, we made decisions. We made choices. We engaged in difficulties. And it didn't appear that you were the ruler of all. But we are a people who long for that to be true, O oh God. We know of our shortcomings. We know how weak is our flesh. We believe, O oh God. Help us in our unbelief because we know that when you rule over all, life is so much more healthy. And I pray, O oh God, that this congregation might find that kind of wholeness and health not because the preacher's good, but because God rules in this congregation. Because the head of the church, Jesus Christ, is indeed just that. The head of the church. That men's reputation do not matter. What matters is the glory of the gospel. The beauty of its fullness. The significance of its life-changing power. Oh, God, might men see Jesus in all of His beauty. And might we leave here overcome, not with rhetoric, but overcome with the nature of the triune God. Our Father, accept our gifts. They are small expressions, but they do express, oh God, that we love You, we trust You, and we think that our financial future is safer in your hands than it is in ours. But we have also concluded that your word demands our first fruits, not the leftovers, but the first fruits. That without blemish, that which is our very best, we give unto thee, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Words, um, you recognize, I hope, that big, handsome brute over there is John Hurt. Thank you, John. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the 8th chapter of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 8. And we'll begin reading at verse 22. You follow as I read, beginning at verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw it, into the, it in the earrings from his plunder. 
From the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camel's necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country, the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash. By the way, that Jerubbabel is Gideon. You remember from chapter 6. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Gang, if you like real, then you're going to love this story. If you um, if have truths frustrate you and nauseate you, then, then prepare yourself for a, a few minutes of, of real delight. We come this morning to the final installment of this life of Gideon, this um, portion of God's words, chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Judges, that gives us the life of Gideon. It's a part of the story that um, doesn't get told very often. In fact, I bet when uh, you came to Gideon in your Sunday school class when you were a child, you weren't told this part of the story. The only parts of the story we heard were about that fleece and about how he delivered Israel from the Midianites with 300 people with uh, pitchers and torches. Uh, but here it is, in black and white, in your Bible and mine, a story that details the experience of a man that uh, the, the story displays a, a side of him of human greatness and... Uh, at the same time, you see a side of him that is nothing but human wickedness, human failure, all wrapped up in the same man. What you get to see in this concluding installment is a hero with all his warts. As it turns out, uh, what began well uh, with Gideon has a sour finish to it. Gideon's life concludes, among other things, it concludes with his saying the right thing in verse 23 and then going right ahead and doing the wrong thing in verse 24. In fact, he does several wrong things. He says something that is wonderful in verse 23. I won't be your ruler. I'm not going to rule over you, nor are my sons. The Lord will rule over you. In the very next sentence, he's off into trouble. If there was ever a man that stood on the pinnacle of success, it was Gideon. 
He had saved his country and from a, and a foreign oppressor and had set them free from this uh, foreign bondage. And at the same time, established a true, is, a true worship in Israel once again and delivered them from idolatry. He had captured and executed two very powerful kings and while so doing, had, um, had avenged the murder of his two brothers at the hands of those two kings. He had chastised the insolence of the unpatriotic in terms of Penuel and Succoth. And he had undertaken an almost impossible task and succeeded in that task um, beyond anyone's wildest expectation. And as a result of that, the people gather to uh, make him king. Do you remember that statement by Churchill? I, I forget how it goes exactly. You'll get the point. Right after or during World War II when uh, Hitler was encroaching and bombing and, and the uh, Royal Air Force went up to meet Hitler and, and Churchill said, Never have so many owed so much to so few. It was either like that or he said, Never so few have done so much for someone. I forget how it goes, but you get the point. Well, that was Gideon's case. Never had so few done so much for so many. That little band of 300 led by none other than Gideon. And because they're so wowed with him, so popular was Gideon, that the people get together and ask him to set up a dynasty. Let, we want you to rule over us, and we want all your sons to rule over us. The people believed, apparently, that, um, that a single ruler could coordinate all the twelve tribes of Israel and, and uh, present a greater front against any other foreign oppressors that might want to attack Israel. But the point is simply that he was so popular on such a pinnacle of success that um, they asked him to be king. To which Gideon replies in verse 23, I will not rule over you. Which is really somewhat of a rebuke to the people when he says the Lord will, will rule over you. Wait a go, Gideon. Bravo. Good answer. Well said. But no sooner was that out of his mouth than he follows that up with verse 24 by saying, Oh, uh, listen, fellas, I do have one small request of you. Could you give me those gold earrings that we picked up in the booty? Which they are more than glad to do and somewhat customary to do. And then what does he do? <laughs> He takes the gold, melts it down, and fashions an ephod, a golden ephod. Now, guys, an ephod was simply a piece of outerwear that the high priest wore. And so what he's done is taken metal and fashioned it into a replica of a piece of outerwear of the high priest. And then <laughs> we're told in verse uh, 27 that... Um, once that's been done and the thing is finished, then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in the city Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. Um, oh, he had started out so well. And now this. And then you'll notice in verse 33, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel played harlot with the Baals. It was a short step from worshiping an ephod to now worshiping Baal. Oh, Gideon. You blew it. 
God does give them 40 years peace, and yet those 40 years are, uh, in those 40 years, you get these hints that things aren't going real, real well. The ephod was just the beginning. We're also told that he had 70 sons from uh, lots of wives. When, when he had been told in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that you shall not multiply wives for himself, he wasn't supposed to do that. And then his life was rather li lived in a rather kingly fashion, even though he refused to be the king. And then he has a son by a concubine. That's a woman that wasn't his wife who lived in another city uh, in Shechem. So he maybe had, had a business trip over in um, Shechem that ended up with the pregnancy of a, a woman. And the son that came from that was a guy they named Abimelech, which means my father is king. His name means that. So although he wasn't a king, he was living like a king and named his uh, son, uh, you know, uh, my, my father's king. But then the worst of it all, ladies and gentlemen, the worst of it all is really found in verse 34. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Israel. Uh, no, oh, there it is. Verse 30, 34. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Forty years of peace. Everything looks good on the outside, but on the inside, things are coming apart at the seams. They didn't remember the Lord their God. So Gideon retires from public life in his hometown. And what do we find as his legacy? Thud! Clunk! Let me read you this again. Um, Gideon had 70 sons who were his offspring and lots of wives. And Gideon uh, died and was buried, but as soon as he was dead, Israel played the harlot and did not remember God. And who had that? That's his legacy. That's what Gideon left behind for us, ladies and gentlemen. What a sad conclusion. But ladies and gentlemen, there are uh, some lessons here for you and me, I think. Lots of them. Stay with me as we kind of rehearse some of the lessons of this man's life, and at least this episode in his life. The first lesson, I think, has to do with how God tests men. That's what I want you to see first, how God tests men. He has a multitude of variety of ways, of unique ways that he tests men. One of the ways that he tests us is through adversity. Another way that he tests us is through prosperity. And for every thousand men who can pass the first test, the test of adversity, it's very difficult to find ten who can pass the second test of prosperity. Gideon passed that first test of adversity with flying colors. He did great with that one. But he wasn't the first, nor will he be the last, of men who succumbed to the test of prosperity. Gideon's case was a case where he was drunk with power. Israel doesn't help by focusing all of her attention right on Gideon instead of God. And, and what man is there that can resist that kind of allure when everybody stands around me and tells me what a wonderful person I am? It's the Achilles heel of most of us, both men and women, is it not? And then add to that the allure of gold, that yellow metal that offers such liberty if we can just get enough of it. 
but normally ends up in bondage as opposed to the liberty. The magnetism of materialism, ladies and gentlemen, is oh so insidious and devastating. The, the best of men can be subverted by sudden wealth. You want a name of a few? About Aaron, or Solomon, or Achan, or Hezekiah, or Bob, and Joe, and Richard, and Sam, and Dennis, and Harold. Guys, um, here's a situation where a man was in a, a circumstance that he was utterly sated with with peace and prosperity and power. And uh, when that happens, people seem to become a veritable hotbed for all sorts of insidious weeds. In Gideon's case, there was sensuality. There was fornication, materialism, idolatry, spiritual decline. Oh, Gideon hit them all. So have some of you. A carnality brought on not by affliction, but by prosperity. It all began back when I got that first big commission check. All I could see was the zeros on that check and bright lights, big city for me. I made, um, I made a, a decision to, to go buy me something really fancy because now I had the money. It all started when I got that promotion and I got my first check that represented the increase in my salary. And oh boy, all I could see, all I could see was bright lights in big city. What I've found since, even though the prosperity has continued, what I've found is a hardness to my soul and more and more distance between me and the Lord Jesus. It's become so much easier for me to find something on the Sabbath which will occupy me other than the worship of God. And now my both of my both sides of my garage are filled with expensive automobiles. Oh, I could have paid less. Oh, but you know, I could afford it. The ramifications of the prosperity has affected my marriage. It's affected my children. I don't know what kind of children I've raised. They don't know the value of a buck. It has made me hard. It has made me haughty. It has made me unteachable. You ever heard this text, ladies and gentlemen? This is in there too. It's in Psalm 106. Where the psalmist says, They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And He gave them their requests and sent leanness into their souls.
That's a depiction of some of us. Oh, not because of adversity. We passed that test. It was the other one. It was the other one that did us in. A test of prosperity. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, um, prosperity is oh so dangerous. You know, I wouldn't have to say that in the inner city of Memphis, but I've got to say it to you. Some of you have leanness in your souls. And it wasn't brought on by affliction. It was brought on by prosperity. And if you continue on the present track, my friend, your soul will shrivel even further. I would be, I would go so far, my friend, as to ask you to pray. To pray for protection. Protection from prosperity. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, you know it as well as I. We do better. Don't we? We do better. With little than with much. Don't we? If you already have it, ladies and gentlemen, I can only pray for your stewardship. Because it is mighty and complex. And I say to you, just because you can afford it doesn't mean you ought to have it. The point is a simple one, ladies and gentlemen. God has unique ways of testing His people. But out here, in our area, for every thousand that can pass the test of adversity, it's hard to find ten who can pass the test of prosperity. What was it that ruined Gideon's soul? I, I don't know. Was it pride? Was it money? Was it power? It really doesn't hint at which one. But oh, my friends, we must not miss that there was a time when this man excelled and it was during a battle. And then there was a time where this man's soul shriveled up and was on the point of death or perhaps did. And what brought that on? Prosperity. How you doing? How you doing in the test? I can only pray. We can only pray that God will protect us in the midst of our prosperity. There's a second lesson. I think that grows from this text, and that is that even the best of men can fall prey to some hidden weakness. Even the best of us, ladies and gentlemen, are susceptible to great 
collapse. You know, at, at his finest hour, Gideon was exemplary. And yet we see this man fall into utter idolatry. How? How is it that this happens to people? It's because we all have flaws, gang. All of us. All of us are flawed. Down to the very core of our being. Do you understand? We are flawed. And without the richness of God's grace, we would get ourselves in much more trouble than we already have. You know, gang, most of us know the struggle that Gideon went through. The struggle to make our practice match our theology. My, my point is, what comes out of his mouth was right. What he did was wrong. He sounded good. I will not rule over you, nor will my sons. The Lord will rule over you. Oh, but by the way, could y'all give me the earrings that y'all got in the plunder? Oh, he sounded so good, but he didn't live what he sounded like. You know, gang, I'm not applauding that. I'm, I'm not excusing it. But I am saying this to you who are a part of the body of Christ. That, you know... We ought to be a whole lot less severe with each other in our judgments. We ought to be a whole lot, lot less quick to condemn because we do understand that the best of us, the best of us have seriously flawed souls. We ought to walk with caution and care lest we too succumb to some Sudden temptation that God brings along. Gideon, ladies and gentlemen, is a disappointing leader. But you're never going to find a leader that's perfect outside of Christ. I say to you, gang, in my, from my perspective, the responsibility of moral and spiritual leadership is an enormous burden. It's a whole lot bigger than I am. And only those who have an ongoing, undeviating devotion to the Lord will ever make it. I haven't made it. There's still lots of time. But there are flaws. There are flaws in your preacher. Serious flaws in him. The same ones that exist in you. Oh, my friends, we ought to be a whole lot less quick if we understood. Less quick to condemn and judge and be severe in our judgments if we simply understood the best of us. The best of us are flawed. Quickly, there's a third application that I thought was just wonderful in here, and that is what this proves. The story of Gideon, it proves what a man can accomplish who is dominated by God's Spirit. You know, there's no reason why some of us shouldn't be as great and mighty for the Lord as this. There's no reason. The only thing that separates us from usefulness and greatness for the kingdom is the domination of God's Spirit in our lives. What prevents us? Except the domination of God's Spirit over us. Oh, my friends, we ought to pray individually, all of us, pray 
that God will make us as useful as Gideon was against the Midianites. One final application, I'm finished. You know, ladies and gentlemen, um, I don't know how long you've been coming here, but if you haven't been here long, let me tell you a little bit about me. I love this book. I love to teach it. I love to read it. I love to study it. I, I, I think the greatest hope that any of us have to get a life right is by conforming it to this book. But I'm telling you, this story is an utter pleasure for me. I loved this end of the story. Uh, because the Bible seems to never tire of presenting us with the real story about its heroes. It never tries to whitewash them. It never tries to gloss over their character, which is, which is, in my mind, is another proof that this book is true, ladies and gentlemen. But it's also so refreshing that at least the Bible, the source book, at least for us Christians, at least it is real. I'm not sure we are, but it is. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, you and I ought to be willing to tell the whole story like the Bible is willing to tell the whole story. The whole story about our lives. We tell the whole story about us with all the successes and all the failures and all the wars for the same reason the Bible does. We tell the whole story so that people will notice that if there is to be any glory gotten, it must be had by the Lord Himself. That we're not the heroes of this message. We're simply participants in the story of which Jesus Christ is the beginning, the middle, and the end. We are just servants of the glorious King. We get it right sometimes and we get it wrong sometimes. And we, when we get it right... It's because we're depending on the strength of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and it's not because of anything in us. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? Real people know that. Do you like real people? Real people know that when we get it right, it's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're holier. But it's because God in His kindness sought, sought fit to use us. And when we get it wrong... It's because we were so overtaken with our own glory, perhaps, that we were so caught up in the circumstance, depending on the flesh. You know, guys, do I need to tell you about the nakedness of Noah? <laughs> How about the adultery of David? How about uh, the wickedness of Eli's sons? Or maybe I should tell you about the, um, the denial of Peter. Or the big fight that Paul got in with Peter. And another big fight he got into with Barnabas. Do I need to tell you about the doubt of Thomas? The Bible tells us all those things. Because the men of this book... They sometimes get it right. And other times they get it wrong. But gang, all of these stories that are collected in this book make faith real and possible for every one of us because we see ourselves, or at least part of ourselves, between these pages, in these men's lives. 
They are stories about doubt and faith. There's stories about struggle and release. There's stories about success and failure. There's stories about pain and pleasure. There's stories about victory and defeat. And that's all a part of it. Most of all, there's stories about lives that hopefully will give us a little bit of encouragement. Not because they are stories about great people. But they're stories about people who have a great God. I guess my point is simply this, ladies and gentlemen. Among us, no phonies are allowed. Aren't you fed up with phony? Don't you, uh, don't you hate the sham and the show and the pretense and the faces that we put on while we traffic among each other? Don't you love reality? Well, ladies and gentlemen, Christianity doesn't encourage sham. It doesn't encourage phony. In fact, it encourages just the opposite. I'll quit with this. Did you, um, did you wonder, like I did, whatever happened to the fleece? Remember the fleece? The one that was wet and dry and dry and wet? Remember that? I wonder whatever happened to that thing. The story doesn't tell us. Uh, the fleece is really never mentioned again. But, well, I love that fleece story, and it's just gone. Whatever happened to that thing? You wonder if Gideon, in the midst of all of his successes, forgot about it. And instead of it being a reminder that God was willing to lead his people in miraculous ways, it simply became the dead old skin of a dead old goat. And so Gideon had forgotten about God's wonderful ways in his life. Have you? Have you forgotten? Has the prosperity just caused you to forget that we are who we are by grace and nothing more? If you have, I just wanted to remind you of the truth. Our Father, I pray that you'll make us a real people. That's what we want to be. We're, we're as sick of phony as anybody else is. But we're guilty as well. Uh, Father, we want to write the real story about our lives. When we succeed, it's because of your grace. When we fail, it's because of our flesh. We're just ordinary people who have a mighty, terrific God. We get glory from our lives, O oh God. Get glory from our lives and arouse those slumbering memories as to who is to be credited for who we are, what we have, what we've got, what we enjoy. Get glory, O oh God. Get glory from your people. You alone, O oh God deserve it. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.